turning your Bibles to the Gospel of John. About a month ago, David uh, asked me to do a standalone message, which is the way it's presented there in the uh, program. I, I take that to mean sort of free-range, um, grass-fed, hopefully not feral. Um, and uh, coming on the tale of Resurrection Sunday, um, this seemed to me appropriate. Um, I'm going to ask you to back up a couple of verses for reasons that will become obvious here in a moment. Uh, to the last two verses of chapter 20. And John writes these things, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. He's southern. Um, And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, a.k.a. John, Therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring me some of that fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, and Lord, what about this guy? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. We're going to stop there. Gracious Father, and you are a gracious Father. Would you now open our hearts to your word and open your word to us for your glory that we might believe and have life. Amen. You may be seated. Does anybody here remember when there were just three channels? <laughs> Listen, I don't mean three channels of ESPN or three channels of Nickelodeon. Kids, we mean three channels total. That was it. And usually around the end of January, maybe the first of February, there was always this. We interrupt our regularly scheduled programming to bring you an important message from the president. And you know what that meant? Life was over as you knew it. Because your night was shot. I mean, you're going to miss Flipper. Um, and there was no Netflix. There's, there was nothing. I mean, we could talk, I guess. Um, but, man, those days were awful. I refer to those as the dark ages. Um, you know, today's equivalent really was captured well by the AT&T commercial, Stay Calm, the Internet's On. Have y'all, have y'all seen this commercial? You know, the family's sort of gathered, watch my fingers now, in the family room. And I say in quotes because they're all on their devices gathered together. So basically like an introvert's uh, dream world, um, together but alone. And the daughter looks up with a panicked look and goes, the Internet's out. And Dad's like, be calm. It's all right. We're going to survive this. Uh, and then they have like intersected sort of scenes with times. So at the four-minute mark, the girl, once again, with a very sort of washed-out expression on her face, says sort of nervously, something just happened in the world, and we have no idea what it was. <laughs> and so you get these punctuated sort of time scenes, you know, 10 minutes, 11 minutes, and the timing's really weird. 24 minutes at this point, Dad is balled up on the kitchen floor, shivering, saying something somewhat unintelligible. At one point, they're standing at a window. Mom has binoculars, and she's watching somebody else's desktop and says they're watching cat videos, and they're all excited, and they just fight for the binoculars. Um, there's a scene where the husband and wife are just kind of sitting on the bed together, and they sort of both put their devices down, and the wife says, so, how are you? And he says, I'm fine. How are you? 
And she replies, I'm fine. And you just realize they, they literally do not know how to communicate with one another. And he keeps checking the laptop to see if, in fact, the Internet has come back on to no avail. And the final scene, which is really my favorite, is he's standing in the kitchen looking at their actual cat saying, just play the keyboard, anything. I just need to see a cat video, essentially. That is so true, it hurts. Uh, it's a bit like watching the middle uh, on uh, ABC. It's so true, it hurts. Um, those are all sort of so now what moments. Um, you know, the president comes on, well, now what? You know, I guess we could play a game if anybody could find one. Uh, the internet goes out, and you do, don't you? You sort of panic. I mean, especially if you've got work that you need to do or cat videos that desperately need watching. Um, And so as I was thinking about, you know, this sort of free-range, feral sermon, um, I thought, well, the resurrection has happened, so now what? And, you know, we have so now what moments all the time. It's, It's something changes. It's as if God sort of opened up and said, I'm here to interrupt your regularly anticipated life. And they call for adjustment. They call for change. They call for maybe sometimes just holding fast. Uh, Some are not serious necessarily. You know, the internet going out. You're going to survive, okay, probably. Um, Others, and they always seem to come at the most inconvenience of times, uh, you're standing in the shower and all of a sudden the hot water heater goes out. And, of course, you're all lathered at this point. Uh, or, you know, the flat curling iron dies on prom night uh, in the middle of, of process. Um, you know, it's time to do something. So now what do we do? How are we going to fix this? Others, obviously, are more serious, um, aren't as easily remedied necessarily. And then others that come into our lives um, are of such magnitude that... Um, we wonder if we will actually survive. Um, there's no easy fix. There's no quick adjustment. There's no, you're just sort of lost in life. And you say to yourself or you say to those around you, so now what do I do? Um, I don't even know how to start to pick up from this. By the way, not all of them are necessarily negative, right? It it could just be a change in job that's a positive thing. I remember um, a lot of stress when we first got married. Uh, And it it wasn't necessarily negative. It's just we had new husband, new wife, new town location, uh, new jobs. On top of that, there were some of the others, so now what? We had two sets of grandparents that weren't doing very well. And, you know, we often just think that stress and so now what stuff is all negative, but it's not. Right? Anything that sort of interrupts our normally expected uh, life is, a, in my opinion, sort of a so what moment. So I was thinking about this chapter, and it to me seems to have uh, sort of a so what flavor to it, um, especially, pardon me, when we consider that it's mostly about the person of Peter. Um. Before we get to that, and the reason that we backed up to um, the last two verses of chapter 20 are, are these. Um, I want you to look at those again. Chapter 20, 
verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For all intents and purposes, that sounds like a fairly standard conclusion statement. And a lot of commentators and Bible students have have looked at the relationship between those two verses and chapter 21 and sort of scratched their head and asked, what's this doing here? Um, John seems to have sort of tied his whole purpose up at the end of chapter 20, and then you get chapter 21. Uh, Not only that... Uh, lots of sort of skeptics or critics of the Bible have picked up on this too. It, it just, it seems like, an, like almost an added appendage. Um, what's this doing here? I do want to tell you, though, by way of encouragement, um, that there's not one ancient manuscript of the Gospel of John without chapter 21. Discussion in the scholarly literature ranges from does it belong, did John write it, did somebody pretending to be John write it, or did somebody just later on tack this on to sort of make it seem like Jesus had predicted Jesus' death. Uh, It's the kind of stuff you find on the History Channel when they talk about the New Testament. There is incredible amounts of overlap in both vocabulary and style between chapter 21 of John and the rest of John. Um, as I was reading to you a second ago, I tried to emphasize something in Jesus' addresses to Peter when he says, Simon, son of John. No other time in the Gospels is, Je- is Peter referred to as Peter, son of John, except in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. For my part, having looked at this quite extensively, I want to assure you that I believe, A, this is absolutely an integral and intentional and purposeful by the Holy Spirit in John, uh, part of his gospel. Was it written sort of uh, after John finished his original gospel in uh, chapter 20? Possibly. I don't really think it matters. But uh, John wrote it. Every Greek manuscript that we have includes this. There's never been any debate about this since... Um, until modern times, but we debate everything. Okay. Not only that, I want you to pay attention to all of these details that you find in chapter 21. Really unnecessary, it seems, superfluous kind of details. For example, verse 6, cast your net on the right side. I mean, I know Solomon says the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but I don't think that's what he had in mind. Uh, Why the right side? Uh, Verse 7, Peter putting on clothes to go swimming. Who does that? That they were about 100 yards off of the shoreline. In verse 9, that it was a charcoal fire. And verse 11, that they caught 153 fish. Uh, Now, I'm not going to spend time here. I'm just going to alert you that a whole lot of ink in history has been spilled over 153 fish. Okay? I mean, you would be... And I could sound like a really insightful preacher and roll some of it out to you. You might go, that's deep, brother. That is really deep. Right? 
Listen, they record 153 fish because they caught 153 fish. Who thinks of that? Fishermen think of that. My dad was a professional bass fisherman for over three decades. I can't tell you the number of times I would be fishing with my dad, catching nothing. And he would say, man, Mr. Danny and I, one time, we pulled out 15 fish right out of this hole. I said, well, you should have put some back. There's not any here for me. (laughs) Fishermen remember these kinds of things. And so for the most part, these details are the kinds of things that you remember when you're there. See, the modern theory today is that the Gospels are basically legendary mythological documents that were created two, three, four centuries after the times of Jesus and that Jesus was sort of a Jewish teacher, sort of a, a, a Jewish Buddha, wandering Jewish teacher, sort of a Judah, um, and that he somehow got on the wrong side of Rome, and the next thing you know, he was crucified. And as David mentioned yesterday, the standing theory by the leading Jesus expert in the world, John Dominic Dawson, is that Jesus' body was thrown on the trash pile like all other criminals, and dogs probably came and ate him. You can find that in uh, Time Magazine 1984 interview with John Dominic Crossan. Here's the problem with that theory. And if you're here this morning and you're really skeptical about whether this thing is really true, I want you to pay attention here. Nobody wrote fiction this way back then. Some of you have read the Odyssey and the Iliad. Here's what you don't see in either of those works by Homer. And Achilles sat down and ate some fish and scratched his ear. It's not there. These are the kinds of details that you find in a document when somebody is at something rather traumatic or, uh, you know, and you do, you sort of remember really weird details. This reads, well, I'll tell you what, I, don't trust me. I want you to trust the world's leading expert in medieval literature. A guy you may have heard of by C.S. Lewis. And I know sometimes we think, well, C.S. Lewis, he's a Christian, therefore he's kind of a homer for all team. He's not. He's still regarded as one of the keenest minds in literature ever. This is what he said. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. And he had. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. And he's actually talking about John. Either this is reporting, his word is reportage, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. What's he saying? Well, you know, you may read modern historic fiction. I like some of it. In modern historic fiction, you do find these kinds of details, just sort of thrown in like ambiance. But when you read the Gospels and it says Jesus fell asleep on a pillow, and I know in an allegorical age we used to go, oh, the pillow represents it. No, it's a pillow. 
It's there because when you are involved in some weird stuff, you remember some weird stuff about it. And what Lewis is saying, based on his extensive expertise in this area, you don't find this in the legendary material of that age. So your options are somebody invented the whole genre of historic novel that nobody followed for almost 2,000 years, and then suddenly it made a reemergence in America, in his case, England. Or you've got people reporting what they saw. Beloved, be encouraged this morning. Your faith does not rest on fable or myth. It rests on actual historic fact. These things happened. If you're a skeptic here this morning, I just encourage you, don't believe everything you hear on the History Channel about the Bible. Take time. Investigate. Think about it. Okay? There's an agenda out there. And that agenda is based in hating Jesus and wanting to destroy him and us. So, can we all agree this belongs here? That may not have been a question you were asking I felt like it was worth bringing to your attention. Which is the next point then is this. So why is it here? Okay, well John told us twice actually. There's so much stuff I could have written about Jesus. At the end we'll grant him a little bit of hyperbole. He said the world could not contain everything that could be written about Jesus. Okay. Which means what he chose to share with us was very intentional very purposeful and very necessary for your and my being able to come to believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing in him have life in his name. And I think that that extends from chapter 20 into chapter 21. So why is this here? Because there's some things that we can't know about Jesus apart from this chapter that are vital for us to know. So what are we going to see? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to see Peter sort of reinventing himself. We're going to see Jesus reconciling Peter, mostly to Peter. We're going to see Jesus reigniting Peter's mission. And then we're going to see Jesus reorienting Peter's perspective. So some reinvention, some reconciling, some reigniting and some reorienting. Now, when you go through so what moments, our culture says this is the perfect time to sort of reinvent yourself, reimagine yourself. Just do a Google search on reinvention, okay? You get all kinds of practical advice. Find your passion. Find what you can do well. Maybe find something new to do. You know, when you go through sort of a so what moment, or maybe right now, because you're at this stage in life, all of life feels like a so what moment, okay? And you're just looking for something new. You're looking for a change, The culture's message is reinvent yourself. Oddly enough, what do you see, I think, Peter doing? I think you see Peter, after his so what moment of the resurrection, trying to reinvent himself. And I know that's going to take a little bit of defending, so let's get going here on that, okay? Uh, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Well, why? Well, commentators are divided on this. One is it's just a practical necessity. Somebody's got to feed this crowd. So we're going to go fishing, sort of like the people on Survivor that provide the food. Okay, That's an option. Okay, Another option is, this is just a way of blowing off steam. 
I know they're commercial fishermen, but come on, when you're a fisherman, you're a fisherman. You still enjoy it, even when it's hard. So it's been a long two weeks. More about that in a second. We just need to get out on the water. Uh, The third option, which was more popular um, but has grown in dispopularity recently, is that this is Peter reverting back to what he knows. Um, And I've read people on either side of this, and I'm just going to say, I'm going to land on this position, and I'm going to tell you why, that this is Peter trying to reinvent himself. Just a quick review of the last 8 to 12 days of Peter's life. Uh, Most scholars, commentators believe that these events happen about 8 to 10 days after the resurrection, which really means that we're about 10 to 12 days after Denial Friday. Okay? So let's review briefly some of the highlights of Peter's 8 to 10 days. There was the foot washing in which he protested, and Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter says, then wash all of me. And Jesus goes, Peter. Um, okay, so there's that. Then there's Peter making the boldest proclamation of his entire foolish life. I love you more than anybody in the history of ever has loved you. And if everybody in this room deserts you, I will not ever, 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 ever deny you, period, end of sentence, see you later, bye-bye. In front of God and everybody, he might as well have posted it on Facebook, nobody in the world is as devoted to Jesus as I am. And then Jesus says, Peter, three times you're going to deny me. No, I'm not. He takes a couple of naps in the garden while Jesus is praying. He cuts off Malchus's ear. That was fun. They flee. He trails John into the courtyard of the high priest where he denies Jesus three times. Around, by the way, a charcoal fire. Only two times in the entire Bible is that Greek word used. In the denial scene and on the beach. More about that in a second. And beloved, when that rooster crowed and the words of Jesus came back into his head and heart, I think... A blanket of shame covered Peter so thick he could have walked into the sun and not seen the light. Is Peter at the cross? You know, there's no evidence that he was there. We don't know. He may have trailed at a distance. He's trailing John here. Who knows? Judas perishes for a not-so-unsimilar thing. The girls come back and they say the tomb is empty. John takes off and beats Peter to the tomb, probably because John was younger. Peter gets there, goes in, sees. John then goes in, sees, and it says in John this specifically, and he, John, believed. 
no mention of Peter in that reaction. Peter's name drops out of the storyline until chapter 21. Jesus appears to Mary. Jesus appears to a group of disciples without Thomas. Peter then, uh, Jesus then appears to a group of disciples with Thomas, where Thomas gets to put his hands in the, in the wounds. No mention of Peter. Now, I would not die for this, but I would probably wrestle you with this. I don't think Peter was there. I know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to this, and then he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve. None of the gospel recorded appearances were all 12 people present. I think chapter 21 is Jesus and Peter meeting for the first time post-resurrection. Now, given the 12 to 14 days that Peter has gone through, I want you to try to put yourself in his emotional, mental state for a second. What would you be thinking? I think Peter thinks, I'm done. I know that Peter and the disciples heard all kinds of wonderful, grace-laden gospel truth. So have you. And how many times in your life, when you have blown it with the Lord, have you come to the conclusion, he's got to be done with me this time? I think when Peter got to the tomb, he is simultaneously filled with a sense of excitement and dread. Because you know what? As Johnny Majors, the coach of Tennessee, used to say, the higher you are on the pole, the stronger the wind blows. He's in the inner three. The tighter the connection, the deeper the betrayal. And we already know Peter. I'm so thankful for Peter, by the way. There's one person in the Bible I get. Okay? I think he thinks I'm done. Of all of the so now what moments in your life, there are none bigger than when you blow it huge with God, with your religious community, so now what? I think that explains a lot in our passage, by the way. Stuff like this. Peter says, I'm going fishing, and the other disciples go with him. And they went out, and they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus was standing on the shore, but they didn't know who he was. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, sort of the rationalist, the ponderer, the closest of all the disciples probably to Jesus, maybe outside of Peter, 
the one to whom Jesus gave authority and care for his own mom, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, this is significant. He doesn't say it's Jesus. Why is that significant, Steve? Good question. Thanks for asking. Um, What's John saying? God is on the beach. And where is Peter? Watch this. Peter is naked in his native environment. Peter standing naked on that boat is about the most perfect picture of where Peter is in every conceivable way. Spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically. And just like our parents were naked in their native environment and God showed up. What does Peter do? He puts his clothes on. Why do you put on clothes to go swimming? Because you're about to do business with God. And just like our parents put on clothes to hide their shame, I think Peter, for the first time, realizing it's time for me to see Jesus, the only way I know to approach him is to try to cover up as best I can. But i got to get to him. By the way, there's remarkable parallels to this story in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus, Peter received his initial call from Jesus. Same thing. They're fishing. Put the boat, put the net out. They pull in a large fish. And Peter at that point says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Why? What was the... Because you know what? When you are in the presence of the thing that you're supposed to be, that's the only response. Only this time, same thing. Peter doesn't run away. He runs too, but he runs too as best as he can. Our parents were naked and ashamed. Peter, I think is naked and covered in shame. They hid and sewed. He hopped and swam. The remarkable thing about Jesus is this. He's that approachable. Even though I think Peter tried to gussy himself up and clean himself up to get to Jesus, he knew to go. Beloved, this morning, I know there are some of you in this room that are under a blanket of shame about as thick as Peter's. And you know your guilt has been dealt with, but but you really aren't believing that the real you can be loved by Jesus. I mean, if he knew me, if he knew what I had done, listen, he knew all about Peter, and he knows all about you, And God isn't interested in saving only hypothetical sinners, just real ones. And the problem with masking and pretending to be something that I'm not is deep down you know that if people love me, it's only the mask that they're loving and not the real me. And Jesus wants to do business with the real you. So come. Come. Plunge in. Swim to Jesus. Whatever you need to do. So he gets to the beach, 
And now Jesus is going to reconcile Peter. Peter. But he's going to do it in a way that seems a little bit cruel at first, but only in the way that a dentist drill seems cruel. Um, now, I mentioned something to you. There's only two times in the Bible that the phrase charcoal fire appears. One is in John 19 when Peter is denying Jesus, and one is here. Jesus is good. He gets to the beach. I don't know where he got the charcoal. He's Jesus. Jesus made it. I don't know. Um, but why is he making a charcoal fire? Well, you all know why. Scent is one of the strongest memory triggers in our lives. This is 100% a setup. Peter hits the beach. Smoke. Done. I'm right back to where I was 10 days ago. And now, to make matters worse but better, I'm riddled with three questions. Peter, do you love me? Well, he's not so bold this time. He appeals to Jesus' knowledge. Lord, you know. (laughs) He's learning. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then tend my lambs. And for the third time, and this time it hurt, it says, Peter, do you love me? I don't know what else to say, but just to appeal to what you know. But I think you know that I do. Then feed my sheep. You think it dawned on Peter somewhere in the middle there? What was happening? Maybe on the third one when it finally stung. And yet it still stung. Listen, Hebrews tells us that our Father disciplines those He loves and He scourges everyone He accepts as a son. Scourging does not sound pleasant to me. It's not. But it's always for good. Beloved, I know that we all sit in this room and we believe God loves me. But is that just an abstract idea that sort of hovers out here outside of my consciousness? Has it ever dropped? Have I come face to face with my deepest stuff and let Jesus take that away? One of the Wesleys was a missionary in the United States before he was a Christian. That's kind of handy. Not uncommon. And he basically got ejected out of the States and was going home. And on his ship, he had the unfortunate pleasure of being with a group of Moravian missionaries. Very zealous. And one night, as they were talking, 
one of the Moravian missionaries said to young Wesley, do you know that Jesus is your Savior? And Wesley replied, I know he is the Savior of the Lord, of the world. And the missionary replied, but do you know that he is your Savior? And again, he replied, I know he is the Savior of the world. Months later, he's walking through London. He comes upon a church where there's a public oral reading of the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And the love of Jesus went from an abstract idea to a throbbing reality in the heart of this young man. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. And if you're sitting here and you're not sure, we'd love to tell you about it. Jesus reconciles Peter. How? By reminding Peter, I've got this. I've got this. One commentator put it this way. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, plunge your failure into my grace and I'll make you greater than you were before. A greater failure plunged into my grace makes you a greater leader and a greater shepherd. Do you believe that? Or do you think God only works through people who pretty much have it all together? I'm really thankful for Peter. The third thing we see is that Jesus reignites Peter's mission. You know, in taking him back through the process of his denials, Peter is restored to Jesus. But, but what about this mission? Well, you see that too. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. What the author was saying a second ago and what this really, really shows us is the same thing that we see, for example, in Psalm 51. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to flip there. Psalm 51, verse 12. David, pouring out his sin, requests in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You see the same thing in Psalm 130. Turn there. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And of course, the wonderful words of Micah. Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquities? Beloved, there's a direct connection here between 
having experienced and, as the author said, plunged yourself into the grace of Jesus with you then becoming one who in turn proclaims and feeds and shares. It's not a job for the professionals only. If you are a sheep for whom the blood of Jesus has been spilled, then start feeding. Start tending. And start feeding. Finally, Jesus reorients Peter. I love him. He just goes through this giant cathartic moment where Jesus just bathes him in grace and then says, oh, by the way, you're going to die a martyr. Um, All he's doing is just letting Peter have what he said he wanted. I will die for you. Notice the clothing imagery again, though. Another will clothe you and take you where you don't want to go. I haven't figured that out yet. I didn't have time, and neither do we. You're already dead here. Um, But I love the fact that he turns around and goes, well, what about this guy? Right? He's still Peter. He's still Peter. And guess what? You're still going to be you. Quirks and all. Right? And that's exactly the you that Jesus loves. I'm so thankful. He appeared to Mary, the existentialist. (laughs) And addressed her exactly how she needed to be dressed. He appeared to John the rationalist. He appeared to Thomas the doubter. And he appeared to Peter the guy that's just all over the map. And I love that. Beloved, he loves you. Who is a God like you? Who forgives iniquities? Do you have another God like that in your life? Have you started serving work in a way you shouldn't serve it? Have you started serving your family in a way that you shouldn't be serving it? Have you started serving money or sex or all the stuff on the naughty list? (laughs) Have you not noticed that it will hound you in guilt and shame when you're not living up to it, but it will never forgive you when you fail it? Who is a God like you? We invite you to come to him afresh and anew.